Chris Koenig was to be here speaking on the subject of prayer this morning, but instead of Chris delivering a sermon, Katie delivered a nine-pound boy yesterday. So I'm going to speak on the second coming today. We saw that, uh, you know, so cute with the children and uh, just all the different ideas about the first coming. And, and it would be interesting sometime to do a video with different ideas about the second coming and what that might look like. The book of Luke, of course, we've been in it a lot lately with the Christmas story, Unto You is Born a Savior. And if we go on in that book and in the other Gospels, we see this same Jesus that came in such innocence and vulnerability will come in one day in great power and majesty. We see Jesus, as Luke continues the story, a man of integrity and wisdom. We see how astonishing and compassionate and responsive and relational he was, this perfect balance of strength and compassion. A servant, gentle, courageous, his perfect character. We see his death and his resurrection. And then as we go to the book of Acts, as Luke continues with the story, he says that Jesus was taken up before their very eyes. A cloud hid him from their sight, and they were looking intently into the sky. Suddenly two men were beside them dressed in white. We understand them to be angels. Men of Galilee, why are you staring up into the sky? I know I, I would have been. Jesus had just gone up. But they say, this same Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come back in the same way that you saw him go. The same Jesus. A Jesus full of compassion. This same Jesus the disciples knew and loved, the one that we have come to know and love, this Jesus of unimaginable kindness, this astonishing, surprising, responsive Jesus will come back. It will be a glorious return as He comes as our awesome judge, but He will be the Jesus of the Gospels. I grew up with a strong anticipation of Jesus' return. As we were teenagers in youth groups, we told each other stories, urban legends of hitchhiking angels. How people would come and they'd pick up a hitchhiker, which you would do in those days, I don't recommend it, but they would pick up a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker would say to them, Jesus is coming soon. And these Christian drivers would say, oh, that's wonderful news. We actually know that. We're Christians. And they drive a little further, and the person in the back seat, the hitchhiker, Jesus is coming soon. Yes, yes, we know that. And this would happen for a while. And then suddenly there was silence, and they looked back, and the hitchhiker was gone. And they realized it had been an angel all along. I really believed these stories as a teen. We had bumper stickers on our car. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Our church parking lot one time was blocked. The only exit to the church parking lot was blocked by a car that had been parked there, and on it was the bumper sticker, in case of rapture, driver will disappear. The driver had in fact disappeared, not in this case because of the rapture, but we couldn't get out of the parking lot until he was found. 
We had prophecy conferences at our churches. We were obsessed about the timing of the second coming. We had arguments, real arguments, over finer points of the tribulation and the millennium. At seminary, when I went there, we would gather in the coffee room, and over coffee in five or ten minutes, we were able to dispense with theological issues that had mystified great minds for centuries. <laughs> and we knew all of the details. But unfortunately, well, as pendulums do, pendulums swing. And we have, I would suggest, perhaps swung to another extreme. Yes, we still give doctrinal assent to the second coming. It's in our statement of faith. But it no longer grips our hearts. Is the coming of Jesus even on my radar? This event that so captured my imagination as a youth, is it now relegated to some back burner of doctrine? How do we see the second coming of Jesus Christ? For some, it's an escape. This world is so disappointing, it's so evil, it's like, God, just get me out of here. But if the second coming is merely an escape from this nasty place, if that's how we see it, we will withdraw and huddle into ourselves, not ever becoming part of the world, not ever working for its betterment. We won't care about the earth because it's just going to burn anyway. We won't care about society. God, just give them what they deserve and, and we'll just hang on till you come. If we're honest for others, the second coming might be an annoying interruption. We actually hope He won't come anytime soon because maybe we've got plans. Maybe we're getting married this year, and if we're honest, it's like, could, could you just wait, Jesus, until after that? It's almost like mom calling the kids from the beach. The kids are playing at the beach and they're having a good time, but it's supper time. Come on, it's supper. Come, and we're like, oh, we're having so much fun here. We don't want to come. And it's almost like this spiritual... FOMO, this fear of missing out if Jesus comes now, what will we miss here? For others, the second coming might fill us with dread. It's like being summoned to the principal's office. We're going to have to stand and give an account, and that fills us with fear. We're in trouble. Maybe others approach the second coming with skepticism. Almost like a politician's promise. Well, he said he would come back, but we'll take that with a grain of salt. It's been indefinitely postponed. Or perhaps it's like when you get a new computer or a new, a new software that you're installing onto your computer, and inevitably there'll be that, uh, do you accept these conditions? And there's this long list of things you're supposed to read. Virtually no one does read it. They just click accept. And then, yeah, okay, it's like that with the doctrinal statement. Second coming, sure, check, done. Now, let's get on with life. Or, is the second coming the joyful climax of our life with Jesus? We sang about that already today. A reunion with this 
It's like a reunion with a lover that's suddenly been found alive after a long separation. The consummation of all human history and my life of faith. Jesus' coming will see justice restored, an end to oppression, no more racism or poverty or suffering. It will be a time of wonderful renewal. How do I see the second coming? Jesus gave us this personal relational promise. He said, I will come again. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I will come back and take you with me so that you may be where I am. Hear how relational that is? Jesus is assuring his disciples that he, though he would leave, he will return and he will bring them personally to the place that he has prepared in his father's house. This image to the disciples would have made perfect sense. They would have known he was talking about a first century wedding where a couple would be betrothed and then the groom would return to his father's house for a time. The bride would wait in her home and prepare. In the meantime, the groom would prepare accommodations in his father's house for the bride. Later, he'd return, perhaps unexpectedly, and he would come with shouts and trumpets with his bridal party. He would call his bride. Hopefully, she was listening to the call and would come out and meet him. And then they would journey together to the Father's house. And that's what Jesus is speaking about here. He's speaking with confidence about heaven because he's been there. He knows what it's like. There's lots of space there in my Father's house. I want it to be just right so that when I bring you my bride, we can enjoy it together with my beloved Father. Some of us are familiar with an older translation that says, in my father's house are many mansions. The word is actually rooms or abodes. And it's the same root Jesus will use in the next chapter of John when he says, abide with me. So the emphasis isn't on palatial luxury, but relationship. It's not, you get a nice mansion over there, and I'll get a nice mansion over here, and every once in a while we'll have tea together. Rather, it's that we all live in this beautiful community together in perfect relationship with each other, with Jesus Christ and His Father in this welcome embrace. Christ's return was top of mind for Paul, so he writes to the Thessalonians, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So you would grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. The Thessalonians were concerned because people were dying in their congregation. Christ hadn't come as soon as they expected. Would they miss out on the glories of Christ's return? As Greeks, they had grown up with a concept of the afterlife that was shadowy, dark, no physical form. You just floated around empty, hopelessly. And in contrast, Paul says, no, no, no. The afterlife is anything but gloomy for the believer. Death is like sleep. 
This is a deliberate word, a very tender word he uses for death. This word sleep is the word like a parent tucking in a child at night with anticipation of a happy morning to come. The body sleeps, but not the spirit. There's this continued relationship with the Lord. He doesn't say we don't grieve. He says we don't grieve like those without hope. We do grieve when we lose a loved one. Grief is real and it hurts. And we ought not to rush people through with empty platitudes. We miss people. But for them, for those who have died in Christ, it is far better to be with the Lord. Paul writes, we believe Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Now he says, Jesus died. That is a very different word. This isn't sleep, that nice word for tucking in a child for a nap. This is a hard, ugly word. Jesus died. Nothing natural about it. It was a horrific death. So that ours could be described simply as sleep. According to the Lord's word, Paul goes on, we tell you that we who are still alive, left till the coming of the Lord, whatever generation that might happen to be, we will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's no advantage for those who are still alive. The Lord himself will come from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord himself, this same Jesus, this loud command, this shout, the word is used for a ship captain calling out to his rowers or military officers to his soldiers. In other words, there's no opting out of this command. Everyone is going to hear it and they are going to respond. This command is going to have such power that those in the tombs will hear it and come out. When Jesus is calling his friend Lazarus from the tomb, Someone has said he had to be very specific when he said, Lazarus, come forth. Because there is such authority in that command that if he had not been specific, all the dead would have come to life. This earth-rending call, this trumpet of triumph. And everyone in Christ will rise in wondrous resurrection to new bodies joined eternally with their souls that have come with Christ from heaven. Paul writes, After that, we who are still alive, if it happens to be us, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The remaining living bodies will be instantly glorified, and we will be with the Lord forever. He says, Dear friends, encourage each other with these words. I think we need this hope today. I think we need this hope to inform us. If we are taking our temperature from our lives or our society or what's happening, we're going to be kind of down about it. But if we can encourage each other with what is ahead, the best is yet to come. We need to have grace for each other and remind each other Jesus is going to return. We are going to be caught up in an incredible reunion with Jesus. 
will meet each other in glorified bodies. So relational. I have a lot of questions about the afterlife, and we don't have a lot of answers, but we do know this. We will remain relational. We will recognize each other. It's implied in this idea of having new glorified bodies. We will have relationships, but they will only be better than they are now. Someone who has suffered the loss of a loved one will wonder, what about our relationship? Will it, will it be any good? Someone who was married for, for decades with a strong faith, someone who's trying to assure them and said, well, of course you'll, you'll see them in heaven. And, and their response back was, yeah, but it won't be the same. It won't be the same, but it will only be better. I took a funeral many years ago for an active, athletic, 19-year-old young man. His mother came to see me a few weeks after, and she wasn't trying to be irreverent at all, and you could tell she was just nervous to even ask the question, but she said, do, do you think he'll be bored in heaven? You know, if we picture this young athletic man sort of strumming a harp, eating Philadelphia cream cheese on a cloud, <laughs> that doesn't sound very appealing. No. Life with Jesus will be exciting and engaging beyond anything we could possibly imagine. A young couple came to me for premarital counseling one time, and, and so, of course, I wanted to know how they met. And I asked how they met. And they said, well, you know, curiously, we actually met in junior high. We were, we were both in grade 8, and uh, we met, and we decided to go steady, whatever that meant at that point. And so they said, it, it, you know, we'd, we'd sort of hang out in the playground, and we'd, we'd hold hands. And then uh, a little bit later, you'd recess, you'd go over and you'd hang out under the school bell, and we'd hold hands. And then, boy, you know, after school, you'd go to the playground and you'd hold hands. And this got kind of old, so they broke up. <laughs> Five years later, they met, and then they did date, and they actually got married, and that's kind of cool. Now, with all due respect to our relationships down here, it's kind of like being in grade 8 holding hands compared to the wonders of marriage. Our relationships here, however wonderful, will pale in comparison to the glories of relationship when we know each other in perfection. The perfection of Jesus' presence when we will be like Him. On our best days, we rejoice in our relationships, but you know that we're not always at our best, and our relationships aren't always at their best. Imagine relationships where there is no sin, no shame, no hiding, no guilt, where in the perfection of Jesus' love we can relate to one another perfectly. We will be relational, but it will only be more beautiful. We won't be dumber up there than we are here. We will know each other, but we will know each other fully and richly. We'll be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. I think we have to kind of get beyond our three-dimensional 
concept of the universe and the cosmos. It's not like we'll be caught up to meet him in the air and we'll start on Earth and we'll sort of soar past Mars and oh, there's Jupiter and sort of swim through Saturn's rings or something and then through the galaxies and somehow on the edge of the universe, maybe there's heaven. That's a 3D conception. But I think it's more like Jesus is at hand. God is near. It's as if at the second coming, the veil will be ripped aside and we will see that God has been close and at hand and imminent all the time. We don't understand much about heaven. We wonder what it's like. There was a pastor and and one of his congregants was dying and he went to visit him. For whatever reason, he took his dog along. Don't know why, but he left the dog in the hall and was soon sorry because the dog was outside and he was whining and he was scratching and he was trying to get in and here he's trying to minister to this dying man and trying to have a conversation and the man was saying, you know, I feel scared. I really don't know if I want to go to heaven. I don't know what it's like. And in a flash of inspiration, the pastor said, do you hear my dog outside? Well, of course I hear him. He wants to come in. Why? He's never been in this room. There's no attractions of any kind in here. He doesn't know what it's like. Why does he want to come in? And the answer is obvious. Well, because his master is there. Because his master is there, he wants to be with you. And whatever happens, whatever heaven might be like, Jesus is there. And if we love our master, we want to be with him. Paul writes to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who by his power will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Philippi was a colony of Rome. It was not a conquered city. The Philippians were citizens of Rome, a far-off city where their Caesar lived. And they were proud of their identity as Roman citizens. They hoped that someday Caesar might come and visit them, and if he did... The understanding would be that Caesar would come and he would shout and he would, there would be trumpets and they would go out of the city to meet him and then Caesar would go with them as their conquering hero back into the city. And Paul deliberately uses a word here that he rarely uses for Jesus, the word Savior. He says, Philippians, you're citizens of a far-off place called heaven. You're citizens though you've never been there And Jesus is going to come as your Savior. He will shout. You're going to go out to meet Him and you will be with Him. In the meantime, He says, make your city like Rome. In other words, bring heaven to earth. We prayed that in a song this morning. On earth as it is in heaven. He's going to transform our bodies. Why? Because these bodies are susceptible to disease and decay. Do I have to tell us that? They don't adequately reflect the image of God. But the glorified body will perfectly reflect our nature as children of God. Paul was a tent maker. And so he says our earthly bodies are like tents. If this tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house, not made by human hands. God will raise us in glorified bodies. My wife and I have a thing about bananas. No, yes, I'm bananas for my wife. I get that. That wasn't it. 
I'll come home and there'll be bananas on the counter. And for weeks, it seems, these bananas are sitting on the counter and they get browner and browner. And I'm thinking there's one place for that banana and that's the compost. And I'm about to throw it out and says, oh no, I'm going to make banana bread. I'm looking at that banana, and I said, there is nothing good in that banana. But she does her magic, and she puts it in the oven, and it comes out, and it is the most amazing banana bread you have ever tasted. Now, I don't even want to think about what the connection is between that banana and that banana bread. There's some connection, but she's done her magic. This body, it's, it's going to the compost. I mean, that's just all there is to it. But somehow, Jesus is going to work his magic and take what is, is um, compost, basically, what is, is corruption, and he's going to turn it into incorruption. He's going to turn it into something glorious. That is the beauty of what Jesus will do. There's a connection of some kind. Somehow the old and the new are connected, but Jesus will have worked this miracle in our glorified bodies. You know, I go on a canoe ride on a misty lake, or I see trees budding, or even, even the beauty of snow as it just covers the ground. And I think, could this get any better? I listen to beautiful music. The new earth will have some connection to the old, but without the perishable. The new earth will be marvelous. It will be a place of beauty. When Christ, who is your life, appears, we will appear with Him in glory. Christ, who is our life, it's what we were always truly created to be. We hear that we are children of God, and we believe it to some extent, but we try to grasp it by faith. When we see our glorified bodies, it will make sense. We will fit who we really are. Right now, we're outwardly wasting away, inwardly renewed daily. Then the two will be in tandem. There's a cartoon, and it's a butterfly. He's been driving a car, but he's been pulled over by this policeman, and the policeman has asked for his identification. He pulls it out, but unfortunately, the picture shows him as a caterpillar. He says, it's an old photo. There's some connection between those two. Now, if you wanted to have a conversation with this caterpillar and say, uh, with this butterfly, and say, you know, would you like to be a caterpillar again? Well, you know, there was some fun days crawling around, eating those leaves. It was kind of cool, but it's nothing like flying. If you asked somebody in heaven, would you like to come back? There were some good days down there. I enjoyed this and I enjoyed that, but it's nothing to what's going on up here. I wouldn't want to be a caterpillar again. Oh, we struggle to apprehend our true identity. So we don't like, we don't act like the children of God that we are. We cheapen ourselves by our behavior. We believe lies. We don't really believe God sees us the way He says He does. But we will be absolutely convinced when we see ourselves in our glorified bodies. We don't know what we will be, but we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. The coming of Jesus is imminent. It may happen any moment. It could happen before this message ends. It could happen this year, 2020. 
three. It could happen in our lifetime. It may not happen for hundreds of years, but it is not late. God is not lazy. The Lord is not slow keeping His promise. He is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, folks, I have lived long enough to hear a lot of predictions about when Jesus was supposed to come. 1974 was a big one. 1988, 1992. The year 2000, that whole Y2K thing, that was fun. Confession time, I filled up our bathtub. That was my emergency preparation. 2012, 2017. Look, God's got a different perspective on time than we do. He will come like a thief. He will come suddenly. Jesus himself on earth does not appear to have known the time of his coming. So it would be foolish for us to think we know when that might come. However, he does give one sign. And that sign is that the gospel will be preached in every nation and people group. And by that metric, we could be very close. Jesus will bring his prepared place, the new Jerusalem to the earth. It will be beautiful. We have the idea that we will go to heaven. Actually, biblically, the picture is that heaven comes to earth. The new Jerusalem, likely the prepared place that Jesus was talking about, comes to earth. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea why does John specify that there was no longer any seed and not like the ocean or something? Well, John was a prisoner on an island, for one thing, and the sea was the thing that was keeping him from the people that he loved. And the sea was a scary place. We didn't have uh, reliable um, transportation across, and it was, it was chaos. And John is saying there's not going to be chaos or separation anymore. I saw this new Jerusalem coming down dressed as a beautiful bride for her husband. The fact that it's described as a city gives us a hint. Cities are places of activity, of industry, of culture, of community. At their best, they're places of excitement and interest. This bride is beautiful. It's as if Jesus' heart is beating in anticipation. Wait till you see my bride in all her beauty. Look, John writes, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He'll dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be their God. Hear how relational this is. And then these tender words, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. Those things are part of the old order and they will have passed away. Yes, there will initially be tears in heaven, some regret and shame expressed. God won't just delete that, but He Himself will console us. He's not disgusted by our tears. He doesn't uh, delegate this to some Kleenex-toting angel. He himself will come and wipe away our tears. They are precious to him. I am making all things new, Jesus says. It's done. It's like on the cross when he said it is finished. There's no loose ends. I've wrapped everything up. 
Katie delivered her baby yesterday, but I wonder if in the weeks before that she had a conversation with her baby. I can't wait to see you. You know, hurry up and come. No, imagine a conversation, if you could do this, between a mom and, and the baby inside. And imagine you could actually have a conversation back and forth. And you were saying, you know, we'd like to meet you. It's nice out here. Why don't you come? And the baby says, well, let me ask a bit about this new world I'll be coming to. Is it warm? Uh, sometimes. Am I able to swim all the time? Well, not the way you think. Uh, will I always be close to mom with a built-in food supply? Uh, no, not really. How would you ever convince a child it would be better to be born? Well, the Bible gives us some idea what heaven is like, but we're kind of like that unborn baby. How would you ever describe heaven in words that would make sense to us? Because it is a world so beyond, so more wonderful, that our language is inadequate. Jesus says, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. The Holy Spirit and the church agreeing, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. What helps me long for His appearing? Sometimes it's when I see injustice. When I see the hurt, the abuse, racism, and I think, I want this to end. God, could you come and make this right? When I experience separation, a loved one, death, health challenges, a desire to be whole, a longing to see Jesus. What hinders that anticipation? Well, some very natural things, maybe a growing family, milestones. We don't want to miss these things. But we need to focus on the second coming in all of its glory, knowing that it, we will lose nothing and we will gain everything. Heaven means history has been changed. History is no longer a mindless grind ending in annihilation. It's not just an endless cycle of violence. There's a glorious consummation to history. We hear doomsday scenarios about what might happen. But look, folks, there has to be a planet with people on it for Jesus to return to. So understand that and have hope. Many of you work hard in ministry, in your jobs. You work hard to be a witness. You struggle hard to be holy, maybe against an addiction. You struggle in prayer. You seek to be the parent God has called you to be. You struggle to have a healthy marriage. Friends, it is worth it. Paul would say, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know your work in the Lord is not in vain. The best is yet to come. What if it were this year. Even so come, Lord Jesus. And the church of Christ joins with the Holy Spirit and says, Amen.